morning, and isn't it great to be able to worship God together today with brothers and sisters in Christ? We're so thankful for the opportunity that the Lord has provided us, and uh, we are thankful uh, that each of you are here, especially those of you who are visiting with us, and I just wanted to take a moment to echo the sentiments that were given earlier at the beginning of our services and let you know that you are very welcome to hear, and we're thankful Glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. We also are glad for the opportunity for our young people to be able to spend the day together. And so we thank those who took part in uh, planning the events today and are hopeful that if you're able that you'll stay and take advantage of those uh, things that have been prepared. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I want you to focus in with me for a moment on the last part of those first three or four verses of John chapter 14. Jesus said that he was going to prepare a place. We've been studying about that place over the last several weeks from the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. And Jesus said if, he's, if he goes to prepare a place, that he's going to return. He said, I will return and I will receive you unto myself. The question that we want to ask this morning is, who will be among the number who he receives? And the answer to that question is that it will be those who have prepared themselves for his coming. We recognize, I think, in this life the importance of proper preparation. We have things like life insurance. We have things like health insurance, 401ks and IRAs and mutual funds and various things for our retirement. We prepare for vacations, we prepare for major purchases. I think we all recognize that if there is something that's going to happen in this world, in this life, that is of great importance, that there is a need for us to pay careful attention in properly preparing ourselves for whatever those things may be. But this morning, what I want us to consider is the fact that we ought also to recognize the need to prepare even greater for the life which is to come, for things of an eternal nature, not just for things of a temporal nature. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 42 and following, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour in which you do not expect. We have this beautiful picture painted for us in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4 of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and those who are there with him And the Bible says that those who are there with him are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Paul said, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. 
Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place, and if I go to prepare a place, I am going to come back and receive you to myself. And who is it that Jesus is going to receive to himself? The testimony of Scripture tells us time and time again that Jesus is going to come and receive those who have prepared themselves for his coming. It is imperative that we busy ourselves with preparing to meet our Lord in judgment. No question about that. But now the question is, how do we do it? I want you to look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, or excuse me, verse 13 to 21 this morning. And I want us to allow Peter to answer the question for us. You remember now, as we've worked our way through this chapter so far, that Peter describes a number of things. He talks about our hope in the first few verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, our hope of heaven. He talks about the fact that uh, our hope of heaven is that which grows more precious to us and that which carries us through this life as we deal with its struggles. He talks about the production of that hope and how it is the case that God has this plan in his mind from eternity and that we read about that plan revealed a little bit, of, a little bit at a time through the work of the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures. But now I want you to notice that as Peter begins in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, the first word that he uses is the word therefore. And the function of that word is to cause us to think back to everything that's been said from 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 all the way down through 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. And it causes us to stop and think to ourselves, now based on all of the information that Peter has given us, what should my reaction be? Or we might say it this way, how does it apply? Or what does that mean for my life? Why is it important? Peter says, I'm going to give you four things. Beginning in verse 13, stretching through verse number 21, that will, that will identify for us why verse 3 to 12 is so important. And what I need to do in order for verse 3 to 12 to be a reality in my life and what uh, you need to do for it to be a reality in yours. Let's look at these things that Peter identifies. First of all, in verse number 13, there is a firm commitment. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice he's talking about the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the second coming of our Lord, standing before the Lord in judgment and being able to go and be in heaven with him for eternity. That's what he's talking about when he talks about this grace that's going to be revealed. But I want you to notice that there is an imperative, a command, in 1 Peter 1 verse 13, and it is this, hope to the end. Or literally, rest your hope on this thing, this grace that is coming to you. Let me ask you a question. Where is your hope? What gives your life meaning what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning and gives you motivation and helps you to think, I, I am excited to be able to wake up and to see a new day? What is, it, what is it that keeps you going? For some people, it's their jobs. They live to work. It's what gives their life meaning. For some people, it's their children. 
They have completely poured and invested themselves entirely in their children. For some people, it's fun or it's leisure or something else that this world supplies for us. But what is Peter telling us in 1 Peter 1 verse 13? What should be our hope? What should be that thing that gets us out of bed in the morning and gives our life meaning and keeps us focused all throughout the day, every day of our life? Peter says it should be heaven. Peter says that our hope should be rested, our hope should be planted, our hope should be aimed toward the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can't see heaven with our eyes. We can't touch it with our hands. But through the eyes of faith, we can see it and we can reach out and we can grab hold of it and hold it firmly and tightly and never let it go. And that's the idea of this this emphasis of setting your hope on this thing, laying it there, resting it there. Grab onto it and never let it go. Sometimes we sing the song, the refrain, build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. That's what Peter is saying. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and following, the apostle Paul, he writes the following. He says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. And then here it is, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. What does he mean when he says set your affection on things above? He means put your heart there. Point your heart in the direction of things that are in heaven, of a heavenly nature, and not on things that are on earth, on an earth of an earthly nature, because you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Jesus would say, lay up treasure for yourself in heaven, Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20. Listen, Peter is talking about a firm commitment. He is talking about making up our minds. He's talking about focusing our minds on heaven to the extent that we recognize it is the most important thing that we have in our life. There's nothing in this world that we're going to see or experience more important than where we spend an eternity. Rest your hope there. But look, Peter also tells us, God tells us in verse number 13, practically two ways to do it. There are two, if you want to be technical here, there are two participles in 1 Peter 1 verse 13. And the reason that that's significant is because they explain the imperative. If there's a command and then an explanation word that follows, then the explanation word tells us how we can fill the command. There are two of them in verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. That, that's uh, what they are. Look at the first one. Girding up the loins of our mind. Probably we're familiar with the picture. In the time of the, of the Bible, of course, the type of garment that people would wear, a robe of sorts, a long flowing garment, and if a person was going to do some sort of physically demanding activity, then they would reach down and they would just pull that garment up and they would tie it around their waist. That's the idea of girding up the loins of your mind. The emphasis is preparing your minds for action. It's about having a disciplined mind. It's about having spiritual resolve and mental fortitude. And here's the thing. Look at this as it pertains to the immediate context of 1 Peter. Why is Peter writing this book? Why is the Holy Spirit inspiring Peter to write 1 Peter? What's the main idea? The main idea is you're suffering as a Christian. 
And here's how you can endure suffering as a Christian in a way that honors and glorifies God. So when Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, what's the emphasis there? Remove the things that distract you. Have a laser focus on heaven. Don't allow the persecution and the difficulty that you're going to endure to distract you from your hope, uh, from having your hope centered on where it's supposed to be centered. That's the idea. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. As the Hebrew writer looks back at what goes on in chapter 11, talking about those great men and women of faith, the writer will say, Therefore, seeing as we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the rates that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him laid down or despised the the shame and the uh, uh, difficulty that he endured. What does the Hebrews writer want us to get from that passage? What does God want us to see? He wants us to see that girding up the loins of our mind means focusing on running the race keeping our eyes glued to the finish line and the Savior who awaits there with outstretched arms waiting to welcome us as we cross it. It's mind preparation. It's mental discipline. It's spiritual resolve. It's mental strength. That's what girding up the loins of your mind is all about. Don't let anything distract you from the goal. Are there things in your life that might stand in the way, in your way? Are there things in your life that might stand between you and heaven? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 29 and 30? He's talking about, of course, in context, lusting, verse number 28. And in verse 29 and 30, he says, listen, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off, because it's better to enter into life with only one eye uh, or enter into life with only one hand than enter into damnation with both eyes and with both hands. Jesus, are you telling me that I need to literally pluck out my eyeball and cut off my... No, I'm not telling you literally that, but what I am telling you is if you have some sort of distraction in this world, then you need to cut that out, get rid of it, because it's not worth sacrificing eternity over. Gird up the loins of your mind. The second thing Peter says, though, is he says you need to be sober. This word sober is a very important and interesting word in the context of the New Testament. Literally, the idea is to be free from intoxicants or anything that alters our alertness. It applies to alcohol, of course, but it also applies to anything else that's going to blur our focus and cause us to lose control. Peter says, listen, because heaven is is your hope, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Because you're going to be tried and that trial is going to perfect your faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, all the way down through verse number, uh, verse number 9. Because this salvation, this, this opportunity that you have to be in heaven is a reality because of the eternal purpose of God that we read about in the pages of Old Testament Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, then I'm telling you that you need to have a disciplined mind. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. I'm telling you that you need to rest your hope on things eternal, that you need to rest your hope on heaven, that that needs to be your goal, that needs to be your aim, that needs to be the thing which motivates you and gets you out of bed in the morning and gives meaning to your life. 
And I'm telling you that for that to be the case, you're going to have to remove anything and everything that is going to distract you from meeting that goal. A firm commitment. That's how we prepare for heaven. We commit to making it a reality. Number two, holy living. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse... 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. Setting our hope firmly on heaven means living lives of holiness right now. Peter says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so you be holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. The call to holiness is one of the greatest privileges man could ever know because it is a call to imitate the God who created us. Holiness is the idea of sanctification. It's the idea of set-apartness or the idea of being different. And as it pertains to our God, His holiness is the one characteristic that He has that is exalted over all of His other qualities. Isaiah 6 verse 3, Revelation 4 verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God's holiness encompasses all of who he is. It describes for us the fact that he is a God who stands above and beyond all that is unholy and all that is earthly and all that is defiled. And listen, God calls us to imitate that same kind of holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 7, the apostle Paul uh, makes this statement about the way that we're to live about the way that we're to live our lives. He says, God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 1, the Apostle Paul would write that we are to perfect holiness in the sight of God. Pursue after holiness, Hebrews 12 and verse number 14, without which no man can see God. How important is holiness? The Bible says that if we're not holy, we can't have fellowship with God in this life and will not be able to be with him in that which is to come. That's how important holiness is. You be holy as I am holy. That's the call. Now, notice how Peter will explain for us how we can do that as well as he did in the previous verse. Look at verse 14. Not fashioning, he says, or not conforming yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Simply stated, the idea is don't pattern your life in the way that you did in the past. Repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And that's what God is calling for in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 13. God says, listen, because heaven is your hope, Because heaven can be a reality for you and should be. What you need to do, verse 13, is you need to focus your mind on heaven. That's the first thing. But the second thing you need to do, verse number 14, is you need to make sure that you turn away, that you change the way that you live. Don't fashion your manner of living after the manner of the world. Don't live like you used to. Change your life and live in a way that glorifies God and imitates his character. By the way, turn just a couple of chapters in 1 Peter and look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, and notice how Peter will elaborate on this point. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 1 to 3, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh... 
Arm yourselves with the same mind, for he that suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Do you realize what Peter's saying? He's saying, listen, 1 Peter 4, verse number 3, you've spent enough time living for the devil. Now it's time for you to live for God. For the time past of our life may suffice us. It's sufficient. The time that you wasted living in this world, that's gone. So let's not waste any more time. Instead, let's cease from sin, 1 Peter 4, verse number 1, and live for God, 1 Peter 4 and verse number 2. Listen, these two passages, they, put, uh, they paint a, a beautiful picture. When we talk about holiness, back to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're talking about two things. We're talking about living in a way that is separate from evil, and there's second, dedicated to righteousness, or dedicated to doing what's right. How do we prepare for heaven? How do we prepare to make heaven our home? It's really not that difficult. All it means is we turn away from that which is wrong and we do that which is right. The only question is whether or not I'm willing to do it. Number three, how do we prepare for heaven? Look at verse 17, godly fear. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 17, And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. You know, the role of the father in our homes has been so trivialized in our society that the thought of revering and respecting him has become a little bit of a novelty. But we should know that in Jewish culture, the father ranked higher than even a judge, and his responsibility to command and teach in his home was esteemed of greater responsibility than a judge's responsibility to render justice and punishment. And when Peter talks in 1 Peter 1 verse 17 about having fear of our Father, what he's telling us is that God wants us to honor and respect our Heavenly Father. Do you remember as a child when you were growing up because of the love and the respect that you had for your Father, how terrified you were of displeasing Him? How terrified you were of your Father looking at you with a disapproving eye? How terrified you were of your Father saying, I'm disappointed in what you've done? The Apostle Peter says, listen, we are children of a heavenly father. And as much as we revered our physical fathers, we need to revere our heavenly father that much more. And we need to live in recognition of the fact that our father loves us and has expectations of us. And also the fact that our father is going to judge us, that we're going to stand before him in judgment and that that judgment is going to be absolutely fair. There will be no special privilege Our Heavenly Father is not like the Little League coach who plays his son in the baseball game even if his son is the worst player on the whole team. Our Heavenly Father is fair, and he will always do that which is fair. And just because I am a Christian and a child of God doesn't mean I'm going to be able to stand before God and say, well, Lord, don't you know all the things that I did for you? Shouldn't you be able to overlook these negative? That's not how God works Notice Peter says he judges with impartiality. Romans 2 verse 10 and 11 says that um, God uh, judges equally for all, uh, to all people. 
He will judge, Acts 17, verse number 31. And Peter is simply saying this, listen, you need to live every day of your life with knowledge of the fact that you're going to stand before him. It is a godly fear. Yes, it means reverence and appreciation, absolutely. But there is also a sense of terror in here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, Paul talks about the, the necessity of all men standing before the judgment bar of God. And then in the very next verse, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What's the connection? There are going to be some who are going to stand before the judgment bar of God and they're going to hear, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. And then they'll spend an eternity in a devil's hell. Peter says, listen, we need to respect our Father. We need to honor Him with a desire to please Him. But we also need to be mindful of the fact that our Father can, will, and must execute wrath and judgment on those who are ungodly. We've got to have a balanced view of God. He's a God of goodness and severity, Romans 11 and verse number 22. And if we take either one of those out of the equation, the picture then is imbalanced. How do we prepare for heaven? Godly fear. Godly reverence. There is, first of all, a commitment. There is, second, holy living. There is, third, godly fear. Finally, there is this abundant appreciation. I want you to look with me at verse, I want you to look with me at verse number 18. In your Bible, the New King James Version, the, the word that uh, Peter use, uses, first of all, is the word knowing. If you're using the King James Version, he simply just says, for as much as you know. And I want you to underline or highlight that word or that phrase and recognize that it is pointing backward to verse 17. We serve God in godly fear, verse number 17. We live in reverent fear because, verse number 18, we know the price that was paid for our redemption. So far in this book, Peter has identified our hope, He's identified our ability to endure trial. He's identified the wisdom of God in revealing his plan for our redemption. And later on in this book, by the way, in chapter 2, he's going to say, you who were not a people are now a people. Specifically, you are the children of God and members of the house of God. And what Peter is calling us to recognize in verse 18 through 21 is that all of that did not become a reality by accident and it didn't come cheaply but rather it came with great cost. You know, he says, you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and your hope might be in God. He redeemed us at great cost, and therefore we must live in a way that expresses our appreciation. That's the idea of 1 Peter 1, verse 18 to 21. I want you to imagine with me just for a moment that someone uh, came up to you one day and said, I'm going to pay off all of your debt, every penny of it, and they did. How would you, how would you show your appreciation to that person for paying off that debt, for helping you in that way? Think about the eternal debt that we all owe our Heavenly Father. Think about the eternal debt that we all owe our Savior, Jesus the Christ, 
who shed his blood and who paid the ransom price for our freedom, literally to pay off our debt. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, he would say, uh, he would say you uh, have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore glorify God in body and spirit, which are God's. Listen, all Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 21, is that every moment of every day of my life should be a living uh, testimony to my heavenly Father of just how thankful I am for making salvation a reality for me. Of just how thankful I am that I have a hope in heaven where my hope can rest of just how thankful I am that I can endure trial with joy and just how thankful I am for his eternal purpose and for him making salvation a reality. Commitment, verse 13. Holiness, verse 14 to 16. Fear or respect, verse 17. And appreciation, verse 18 to 21. We take all four of those things together and that's Peter painting for us a beautiful picture of how we can prepare to be with our Lord in heaven forever. I want you to imagine this scenario for a moment. You begin your career, and on the first day of your new job, your employer sets a piece of paper down in front of you with options for retirement fund contributions, and you say to yourself, I'm not going to worry about this now. After all, I'm just 22, 23 years old. There's plenty of time for this later. A few years later, you get married and you go and speak to your financial advisor after your, after, your, uh, uh, after your marriage and your financial advisor says, listen, it's time for you to start saving for your retirement. And you and your wife say, listen, we're still in our, early twi- our late 20s. We've got plenty of time. We'll worry, we'll worry about this later. A few years later, your first child is born, and again, well, we've got other things we need to spend our money on. There's time. We'll worry about this later. Your child grows up, and he goes off to college, and uh, then your financial advisor calls you up again and says, hey, you really need to start saving for retirement. Listen, we've got plenty of time, more than 20 years. We don't need to worry about it now. Call me back a couple of years from now, and suddenly 60 is staring you in the face, and you say, "Uh uh-oh. We should have started preparing for this a long, long time ago. I think every single one of us recognize the fact that if we put ourselves in a situation like that, that would not be be very good. We would not be able to say that we had adequately prepared for our retirement. We all recognize the importance of preparing today for what's coming tomorrow. Benjamin Franklin said, by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. What about eternity? How are you preparing for eternity? We're all going to spend eternity somewhere. There's never going to be a time in which any of us cease to exist. Do you realize that? We will never not exist. We'll either be here on earth or we'll be in heaven with our Father or we'll be in hell with the devil for eternity. But there will never be a time in which we cease to exist. So as much planning and as much preparation as we put into our retirement and into our, uh, our home purchases and into our uh, vacations and whatever it may be, how much more should we focus on preparing for where we're going to spend eternity? 
This isn't all that the Bible says about it, but there are four things in 1 Peter chapter 1 that will certainly get us started in the right direction. So I want to ask you this morning, have you started preparing for eternity? Don't be the person who puts off retirement until they're 59, looking 60 in the face, and then realizes they've waited too long and retirement just ain't happening. Don't be that person. Start preparing for eternity right now, today, this moment, if you haven't already. Because the truth is, eternity could begin at any moment. The Lord could return at any moment. Or my life could end at any moment. Are you a Christian today? If not, why not? What are you waiting for? The Bible tells us that if we believe in the deity of Jesus, if we're willing to confess our faith, if we're willing to repent of our sins and put on the Lord in baptism, that our sins will be washed away and God will add us to the church. Are you a Christian this morning? Have you stopped in your preparation for heaven? In your preparation for eternity? We would encourage you to make those changes that need to be made. If we can help you in any way, won't you come forward and let it be known while we stand and sing the invitation song together.